Hello and welcome to the MCBA podcast, this month influencing the new government. I'm Chris Walker from MCVO's Public Affairs team. And I'm Elizabeth Chamberlain, Head of Policy at NCVO. Thanks for joining us as we take a look at what the new government means for charities. So after election result that uh, surprised a lot of people, it was kind of looking touch and go for a few days, but uh, we do now have a government that has uh, passed its Queen's speech. So Elizabeth, are there any things in the Queen's speech that charities should be particularly looking out for? Well, first of all, it's clear that delivering Brexit is the government's primary focus. So if you look at the 27 bills, eight of them are about dealing with different aspects of the of us departing from the EU. So not only the repeal bill, which will repeal the European Communities Act, but a range of bills dealing with customs, trade, immigration, fisheries, agriculture... Um, and the list goes on. Obviously, from NCVO's point of view and charities, the two that are most likely to be of interest are the repeal bill and uh, the immigration bill. Now, what the repeal bill will do is repeal the European Communities Act and it will convert EU law into UK law when we leave the EU. It will also create temporary powers to make secondary legislation that will enable the government to make corrections so that the laws operate appropriately. And it will allow changes to be made to domestic law uh, so that it reflects any content of any withdrawal agreement under Article 50. So what are some of the issues for NCVA with the repeal bill? I think the key cha- the key issue will be um, knowing what is a tech a simple technical change uh, which government can easily uh, pass and and deal with from a kind of purely uh, trans translating let's say EU law into UK secondary legislation and what instead could be a substantial policy change where actually we will want to see debate and we will want uh, parliamentary scrutiny and charities will want to feed in with their expertise and their and their views. Uh, the other issue is that the look the, the this body of EU law will be a uh, translated and converted into secondary legislation and we're aware of the fact that that in itself causes uh, some concern because obviously you've got a whole body of very important legislation whether it's about the environment or or refugee uh, immigration rights that is going to be almost downgraded to secondary legislation so we'll need to be very careful about how the process uh, unfolds. And some of these things will actually, we've, we've got a kind of wide range of uh, Brexit-related bills, so some of these will actually be put into primary legislation. Yes, and the other bill that I should mention that, that again, organisations will want to be uh, monitoring is the immigration bill, uh, which will uh, end free, mo- free movement of EU nationals and allow government to set its uh, own immigration policy. So again, of key interest to charities, since we know uh, how much of the charity sector workforce is, is made up by EU nationals. 
so one one thing that um, is in there that a lot of charities might have um, yeah, raised your eyebrows at is uh, the data protection bill, which is always um, data protection always an interesting issue for charities is that is that something we're going to have to be watching out for uh definitely the bill will implement the general data protection regulation which uh, many charities have already been uh following with interest whilst it was being uh, developed at EU level and it'll also implement the new directive that applies to law enforcement uh data processing so a number of uh um, issues to look at uh, as the bill goes through uh, Parliament, so which are relevant to charities that process data. So um, the it it's interesting to see that the the kind of the the aim the stated aim of the bill is to ensure that the data protection framework is more suitable for the digital age, but it's also to allow citizens to take better control of their data. So this will definitely have implications for for charities. And always the kind of big question with with Queen's speeches: is, is there anything that that we would have liked to be in there, but we but but wasn't? Uh, well, we, we knew it wouldn't be, uh, but definitely I think uh, NCVO and others would have liked to see, for example, uh, the previous uh, pledge around uh, three days uh, volunteering being taken forward in legislation and no doubt following the the amount of concern in the run-up to the to polling day around uh, campaigning and the lobbying act i think we certainly would have liked to see some form of um, legislation taking forward lord hodgson's recommendations around changing uh, the non-party campaigning rules uh, but um that obviously wasn't there unsurprisingly uh, because we're still waiting for government's response actually to uh, Lord Hodgson's uh, report. Uh, so it's certainly something we'll be lobbying for uh, in the future. So what do you think, Chris? Do you think there's any chance of seeing Lord Hodgson's recommendations in uh, future uh, sessions? Um, so, I mean, the first thing to say is that you don't necessarily have to uh, have something in the Queen's speech to then introduce it. Um, so it, it is possible that um, those things could be introduced at, at sort of a later time, even in, even in this session. Um, but it kind of it does indicate there's a bit less pressure to do so, and it, it's probably not at the top of priorities. Um, I think we our, our sense is that certainly the Hodgson recommendations is something that we might have to look at uh, implementing via other parliamentary means. So uh, yeah, perhaps potentially through a private members bill, if if someone wants to take that forward. Can I ask, actually, does does it mean that we also need to start thinking about taking forward um, our agendas or or outside uh, of statute? And will the government also be thinking about how it can take forward its own, um, uh, maybe other other areas uh, without legislation? Yeah, so I think one of the one of the interesting things that tends to happen when you get uh, a government with uh, a minority government or a government with a very small majority is actually they start to look at you know what can they what what can they do and and sometimes you know they look at things and think well we can't get this through Parliament so they have to start looking at other other means to in, uh, to make policy changes so sort of non legislative routes um, and then I think when 
Um, the fact that you know we have this long parliament, uh, sort of the long, long parliamentary session, and we're going to get these kind of very close votes. I think that does actually create some opportunities for charities who haven't necessarily got what they wanted in this Queen's speech, um, as Angela from Age UK told us. I'm Angela Kitching. I'm the head of external affairs for Age UK. I think a much uh, tighter election result than was predicted probably means that Parliament is going to have a big influence over what's able to be debated and on what goes through. I think charities can use their contacts with uh, MPs of all parties to try and make sure that their issues do get debated. But I think there could be a risk that very little progress is made on UK social policy because it'll be very difficult for the government to, to win the big votes and get everything through that they want to. The election result has thrown up a lot of interesting constitutional questions. I spoke to Akash Pound from the Institute for Government about what this might mean for the new parliament. I started by asking him what impact a minority government would have on parliament. My name is Akash Pound. I'm a fellow of the Institute for Government. We are, of course, uh, very used to having a majority government here at Westminster over, over recent decades, but minority government is not um, that in unusual internationally, and also if you go back further in history at Westminster either, or indeed look at recent history in, in Scotland and Wales, for instance. And um, I think what you can see from the, from, from the research we've done is minority government um, does have to work in a different way. It, of course, can't be guaranteed uh, to win every vote, to get every piece of legislation through Parliament unscathed. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's automatically going to be permanently in crisis, permanently on the on the brink of, of being brought down. Um, it's important to remember that the opposition um, is hugely divided itself. So, you know, even if... Uh, all the opposition parties were to to, to um, oppose the government. It's it's rare that it's going to be in their all of their interests at the same time to, for example, seek an early election uh, or something like that. So so minority governments are often able to survive through divide and rule basically, and by making concessions along the way to to get the core of their business through. And I don't think. Um, the past year under Theresa May has has suggested that you know her natural style of leadership is uh, one of you know openness and and compromising and working across party lines and and, and so on. Um, and you know obviously since the election the, the 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 necessary deal that they've now done is is simply with the DUP and it might be probably it is the government and the prime minister's intention essentially only to have to, to deal with the DUP and, and, and not really um, have to compromise with other parties as well. And, and that could work for a while, but you know, even with the DUP, they've only got a very narrow majority and there's sort of competing factions within the Conservative Party as well that are likely to make her, uh, her life difficult, whichever sort of path she takes on, on Brexit in particular. So, I mean, I think um, if this is to survive, um, the, the sensible thing to do would be to to at least try to bring along part of some of the opposition parties um, with with her as well. But um, I don't think that's quite the, the intention at this point. Probably where this gets more interesting is um, when you get into the detail of, of legislation. I mean, the DUP have... Um, committed as well in this in this um, in this published agreement to back the government's uh, Brexit strategy and, and relevant legislation, which I was slightly surprised by actually, because it, it, on paper at least there's no sort of conditions attached to that. It, it, it reads almost like a 
a blank check that the DUP will back the government's Brexit strategy come what may. Um, I, I suppose I'll believe that when I see it. Um, because I think when it get you know when we get into the detail of, for example, you know not just the big great repeal bill, repeal bill as it's now called, but legislation on um, on customs and agriculture and some of these issues that are very important in the Irish context and in terms of an immigration and in terms of how the Irish border is going to be kept open post Brexit. I mean, the DUP have strong interests in, in that. So they may in the end back the, the general principle of Brexit. And of course, they campaigned for Brexit last year. Um, but they're going to, you know, I'm sure, use their leverage to, 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 to get the concessions they feel are necessary um, to avoid economic harm to Northern Ireland um, around the, the details of Brexit. The government is in a far weaker position than it, than it expected to be. Um, and it's going to struggle to get all its business through Parliament unscathed, um, through Commons and, and through the Lords, where it obviously didn't have a, have a majority anyway. So I suppose the logic of it is that the government's going to be in need of, of supportive friends, both inside and outside of, of, of Westminster, um, if it's struggling to put together a, a, a majority um, to get something through the Commons then no doubt it will be helpful to its cause if you know there's a powerful coalitions of, of charities or, or other external actors lining up to say um, that it's a good thing and conversely it won't be particularly helpful to their cause if, if they're getting a lot of external criticism. So I think just in, the, in, the, in that simple sense, if the government's weaker in, in parliament, it's more in need of, of external friends. I think just um, in general, the, the legislative process becomes more unpredictable for yeah for everyone concerned so the the, the government will set out plans um in 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 its in in bills um and yes usually you'd expect it, the bill to get through particularly through the commons the lords can be a bit more difficult of course um largely un, unchanged um but it's in those areas where the DUP is not committed to backing the government, which is basically all of domestic policy, um, other than, as I say, finance and budgets. Um, the government has no guarantee and, you know, amendments will be brought forward and, and, and passed, no doubt. And um, we'll see greater, yeah, we'll see greater uncertainty about these things. So all through the process, um, external actors and, and charities, no doubt, will need to keep more um, more engaged in the process and, and follow the twists and turns of of, of the legislative um, of the legislative process and amendments as they come forward and maybe keep up the pressure a bit more all the way through till um, till royal assent. I also asked Akash about whether the prospect of close votes in the Commons might mean some focus is taken away from the Lords. I don't think this makes the Lords less important. I mean, it just means there's. Yeah, there's, there's, there's probably um, an extra arena, namely the House of Commons, uh, where more change to legislation is, is, is now possible. But yeah, that hasn't changed the position of the Lords. I mean, the government, of course, is far short of a, of a majority in the House of Lords. Um, it's got the support of the DUP. The DUP have only got, I think, four peers in the Lords, so that's no help. Um, so then you've got, you know, Labour, Lib Liberal Democrats are a big block there, lots of crossbenchers, um, lots of independent-minded conservatives too. 
Um, so yes, clearly um, that is still going to be an arena where the government's going to struggle. And I think the, the, the other thing to, to, to remember about uh, minority government is what they often struggle with is not simply winning votes or getting their bills through it's with losing control control or trying to keep control of the timetable so um you know house of commons is normally quite tightly regulated through program motions through timetabling that you know curtail debate guillotine motions in in old language um and if the whips are struggling to keep control. I mean, one of the first things that might happen is you'll see, yeah, you know, bills getting held up through sort of parliamentary game playing and um, filibustering or whatever, and lots of amendments coming forwards. And that becomes potentially a big problem, particularly on Brexit, because we've got this ticking clock of, you know, two year supposedly negotiating um, deadline. Um, there's going to be lots of legislation coming forward. Um, they might start losing control, as I say, in the Commons. The Lords also, even if it kind of accepts the primacy of the Commons in the end um, and lets things through, it can hold things up. So it seems like there are uh, lots of opportunities for charities, even though the election result was a fairly unpredictable one. Uh, what do you think uh, are the opportunities for charities? Um, yes, yeah, so we've seen that... Um uh, government, if they want to get things through, they're going to have to work with others. Um, and we, we saw that with Stella Creases amendment. Um, I think there's a couple of things to sort of uh, watch out for. Uh, so at the moment, actually, uh, that sort of contact with number 10 could be quite difficult because uh, we are a bit short of advisors. Um, so I think we, we almost need to see a sort of stabilisation in the, in the prime minister's position before those... Um, before those roles get filled. Um, I wonder if that actually might make departments a bit stronger. So um, your departmental contacts might be more important. I mean, is there anything kind of you've picked up in the aftermath of the election in terms of civil service? I think there's there's a lot more outreach uh, from civil servants than, than there was perhaps uh, after the last general election. They They are... I get the impression that they are um, keen to uh, hear from uh, organisations as they are thinking about briefing new ministers and developing new policy agendas. So I think that's possibly a positive thing. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the challenges is going to be that, that Brexit is feels like it's going to dominate everything, and and whether there will actually be much um, much space. Um, aside that I um, agree sorry I, I agree actually because a lot of the conversations we've had so far are very much around uh, policies rather than uh, issues that may uh, require primary legislation what has been made very clear to us is that par the parliamentary timetable is going to be very tight and very limited and focused on Brexit so uh, asks and recommendations that require primary legislation are likely to go uh, at the bottom of the pile. So talking of Brexit, how, how can we influence uh, the process as it uh, unfolds? Are there opportunities for charities to uh, get uh, their voice in the, in the, in the debate? Um, so I think departments are willing to listen on Brexit and uh, I think we know the government feel like they might have to uh, 
you know have a slightly different course on this than they than they were planning before the election um but i think we've got to remember that actually there, there are so many different voices in this debate um you know we've got a, a very loud business voice uh, understandably and so i think it's it's kind of thinking about where you know charities have that have a specific area of expertise so i think charities might uh, find it challenging to uh, to influence some of these big questions as rob from action on hearing loss told us I'm Rob Geeney, Public Affairs Manager at Action on Hearing Loss. I think Brexit clearly changes after the election. I think it clearly is less likely to be dictated, um, the terms of Brexit, by a narrow group in number 10. That said, I think Brexit is such a macro issue encompassing the whole of society that any one individual's voice is quite weak. Um, and therefore, I think through its collaboration and its partnerships and coalitions, the charity sector can have an influence um, but I don't expect it to be particularly strong. I still think it'll be a hard slog to get what we want from this process. And the fact that it's going to be a two-year parliament, will that help or hinder charities? What's, what's, the, what's your view also for MPs in terms of uh, their uh, role in holding government to account? Um, so broadly, I think it's going to help MPs. Uh, there is this uh, question about there, so there won't be a Queen's speech next year. Um, so you avoid this the kind of votes that we've we've seen, um, and so that potential defeat in the overall government program. Um, but at, in in practice, um, because of the way the fixed term Parliaments Act works, um, some of these issues are they're not kind of pure confidence issues. So actually, um, the real kind of question is, um, can the government win a a confidence motion, which um, it seems like they probably will be able to, certainly for the foreseeable future. Um, Wasn't there a pledge to scrap the fixed parliament, uh, fixed term parliament act in the Tory manifesto? Uh, yes, there was, um, and it's this is one of the things that sort of hasn't made it uh, to the Queen's speech. I think it it's one of the things that looks like. Um, the government have decided they they probably can't do, or they mm. will will wait and see and see if it it comes back in another form potentially. Um, and I think in terms of that kind of two year period, um, in some ways I think it's really going to help MPs because uh, they just have this time set aside. Um, you know, there there is going to be more time to debate things, and um, crucially, they can actually um, uh, they can look at different ways to uh, ensure they have that parliamentary time so one of the things that I think uh, to really watch out for in this parliament is going to be um, the sort of use of procedural motions so uh, when you um, uh, introduce a bill you have to pass a programme motion which sets aside how much time parliament will get to debate something and I think that's the kind of area where actually um, government potentially could could lose votes I think we've seen sort of in the past that in this situation that it's not necessarily the uh, votes on legislation that go it's often these kind of um, uh, slightly more tricky procedural things um, they normally have the numbers on kind of those big controversial votes uh, but what tends to happen is they might underestimate how many people they need in a particular place or time and that can really impact on the government's ability to sort of get their agenda through so if it's going to be helpful for MPs to have a two-year uh, parliament because it gives more opportunities, presumably it's not unhelpful for charities that want to influence as well. Yeah, and, and I think one of the big practical um, differences that might make is that, um, say, normally when uh, bills go through, and particularly at report stage in the Commons, actually there's not that much time for amendments. Um, so, 
you know, you can, as a charity, you can get uh, an MP to kind of take something forward. It can be a really interesting issue. Uh, but then just because of the lack of time in the Commons, uh, it won't get debated. So uh, on that kind of practical note, um, at least, I think, um, but also I think just generally, uh, the more scrutiny you have of a bill, actually, is probably better uh, for those outside organisations with the expertise to then be briefing uh, MPs and peers about it. And in terms of other ways of influencing, what what what's the what's your view there? So, for example, NCVO works a lot with select committees. Uh, do you think there are um, there are opportunities still opportunities there, or again has the fact that it's a hung parliament? Um, is is that going to kind of what what's the role of select committees in this in this scenario? Yeah, so select committee is going to be interesting um, because uh, because of the election result, um, there won't be uh, government majorities on committee anymore. Um, so that in practice, that might not make that much difference because committees generally tend to be uh, try to come to cross party positions. Uh, so this is why even where there is a government majority in the committee, they do still tend to be quite critical of, of government policy in places. Um, but I just wonder if that might kind of tip the balance a bit. Are there any practical things that charities need to be thinking about? Um, so one thing they'll need to watch out for is uh, if you hold an event in Parliament. Um, so the fact that there are going to be all of these close votes means that uh, MPs are going to have to be um, uh, around the Commons at pretty much at all times when... Um, there is business going on in case there's a vote. Um, so if you are holding an event, um, you need to make sure it's on the parliamentary estate um, if, it's, if it's happening at a time when there are likely to be votes, uh, as otherwise MPs just aren't going to turn up. So thanks for listening, and please do let us know what you think of the podcast so far. If you're interested in volunteering trends, then do check out our first episode and keep an eye out for the next podcast. Mm-hmm.